screen says, turn to 1 John. Turn 1 John. We've been out of the series for a little while, quite a while, actually. And so uh, I kind of struggle with how to reintroduce and come back into, uh, into this great little book. And so what I'm going to do is kind of give an overview, a, synops- a synopsis, <laughs> however you say it, uh, of, um, of what, we've been co- what we've covered so far. Um, this series of 1 John has been probably one of the most challenging, I, I would say the most challenging I've ever encountered. The, the challenge is that it's written in the simplest of language as you read it. Uh, words in the English and in the original na- language of Greek, uh, the, the hard words, the difficult words are rare. Occasionally, you'll have a hard word like advocate, chapter 2, verse 1, or propitiation, or atoning sacrifice in chapter 2 also. Perhaps unrighteousness or righteousness may need a little bit of explaining. But most of the words that you read through, a third grader and a good second grader can read First John. It's not on a, a deep level as far as the, the words. But the depths of the concepts or what's challenging. As you read through John, 1 John, it's as if John, the, one of the last books that was written, one of the last letters written, he took all of the Old and New Testament and the, the total sum of the concept of God and Christ and our relationship is summed up in this little book, distilled. You could say it's distilled down into this little letter. When I lived in Fiji, I taught a little Saturday morning school. We call it a vocational ministry school. And one of the things that I, I tried to teach people is how to study the Bible. And I want to share this with you, and I know some of you do this and, and even better things. But how, how do you understand a little book? How do you understand the Bible? And if you're new in the faith, if you're young, physically young, you're, and you, the Bible doesn't make sense to you right now, this might give you a little idea of how to approach God's Word. I to, told the people if you have a Bible, a notebook, a pen, and you're thinking, you can get a lot from God's Word. And so what I encourage people to do is just take a short book like First John. I would suggest maybe Ephesians or Philippians. Start there and just read it. Read it from the from the first to the last. Those short books will take you 15 minutes to read. Read through. And then as you read, take notes, write questions. What in the world does he mean by what is this? What does that word mean? I'm just write down questions and then read it again and read it again and read it again. And if it takes you six months, just read it over and over. And suddenly you'll come to light what, what, what that particular book is saying. And as you write notes, you'll start getting the answer to them. And an, an example was um, Mike as he got up here today and talked about Revelation 13, the lamb that was slain before 
the foundation of the world. You may read over something like that a hundred times and then suddenly it hits you. Hey, he's saying something here. There's there's something deep here. Arthur Pink was a early 20th century preacher and he wrote no verse of scripture yields its meaning to lazy people. Fortunately, that's not totally true. God's word is sharper than a two edged sword. And sometimes you can read it in a lazy way and it will hit you. But the point that he's making is if you think and you study and you're diligent in God's word, you will reap great benefits. And I hope that lessons, my lessons encourage you to do that. You know, words like light, darkness, no, abide. They bring about a depth of meaning that we just begin to fathom. And one of the, the things that that scare me, I guess, or give me stage fright or something is when I study those words and I realize I'm beginning to see some things. But one of the things I see is I don't see very much. You know, it's like you suddenly realize how little, you know, and then I'm expected to come up here and share with you. <laughs> and I'm sharing out of my ignorance. I'm sharing out of my study. But I know it's just it's shallow compared to what God's word is. A further challenge is to present these lessons in its context. John has a thought pattern. He's thinking something here. And so we're trying to discover what that is and com- convey the large picture as we dig into the, the into the details. And so as I approach this letter, my purpose, as far as my purpose is concerned in teaching first John, I've adopted John's purposes. I want a church filled with joy. I I would love for this church to be a church known for its joy. And I think in some ways it is. I want a church, a people that do not sin. And I want individuals confident in their eternal life. For those of you who have lost their joy, who are sitting here today and say, I wish I had joy. I want you to know that if you grasp this little letter, the meaning of this little letter, and put it into practice in your daily life, it will give you a joy that's full and overflowing. You're not going to need a, a uh, pep rally from people to have joy if you grasp what this letter is saying. And for those of you who struggle with sin, and we all struggle with sin But for those who are particularly burdened by a sinful weight that you brought in this morning and you you feel that guilt of that weight. This message will empower you so that you will not sin. And for those of you who are tentative as regards to your salvation, who wonder if you're saved. Who in those quiet moments of introspective introspection. Wonder if you've just fooled yourself. Into believing that you're saved. I want you to know that you can know that you have eternal life. And that would be the height of personal arrogance if I made these claims and promises based on my own personal convictions. These are the stated purposes of John. This is what John said. I'm just telling you what John said. He said, I wrote this so our joy will be filled to the full. Overflowing. That's what the word means. And he said, and I wrote this, I write this so you will not sin. So something about this letter helps you not sin. 
And I write this so that you may know that you have eternal life. At the end of it, he just kind of looks back and says, I wrote this letter to you so that you'll know that you have eternal life. And so we're going to have a quick overview of what we've covered so far. It's chapters 1, 1 verse 1 through 221. You think, how in the world am I going to get through that many chapters? I'm going to do it fast. I'm going to read a lot. So I want you to open your Bible because we're going to read a lot. I'm also going to read my, par- my paraphrase to help kind of bring us all together and see what, what this little book is, been, uh, is saying. I'm going to leave out a lot, okay? A lot's going to be let, left out, but I'm going to try and hit some highlights here. The first thing that I discovered about this, let- this letter is it is a God-centered message. It's Christ-centric. It's God-centric. From the very first verse, as you read it, I, wrote these, I read these first verses over and over and over again just to say, okay, as, as John introduces this, what is he trying to say? What's his point here? What's he, what's he trying to get across? Read it over and over. And the concept that he begins, and I see it, just the pattern throughout the, the book, is that the gospel is about God. The gospel is... Is about Jesus. When I say God and Jesus, they're, they're synonymous. They're, they're, it's basically the same thing. So if I say God-centered, think Christ-centered. If I say Christ-centered, think God-centric at the same time. The good message is centered in Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen what we have seen and heard, so that you may have, you, you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And then we'll go ahead and read four, and we write this to make our joy complete. Each time we find something to do in this letter or not do, each time John says, do this or don't do this, I haven't really checked if it's each time, but I think it's each time, okay? You can study the book of 1 John and correct me if I'm wrong. But I think every time that he does that, he pulls us back and says, but I want you to think about God. Do this, but look here. Uh, look at God. Look at look at Jesus, because it's so easy for us to become me focused, to think about me and what I do and what I don't do and the result of what I do and the result of what I don't do. To give you an example in chapter two, which we'll get to in a little while, verses one and two that I mentioned, it says, I wrote this so that you do not sin. And I would think if I was writing it, I would then tell you how not to sin. I would then tell you some things you don't do, some things that you do do. Here's the list that you, you have. This is how you do not sin. After this whole first chapter that he's come, he comes into, into chapter 2 and he says, I write this that you do not sin. And guess what he does? Immediately, he says, but if you do sin, what? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We have an advocate with the Father. We have someone who speaks on your behalf. He is the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice. This is who he is. And so as soon as he tells you something that you don't do, 
He doesn't tell you how not to do it. He just brings you back to Jesus again. He brings you back to what he does. He says, it's almost as if John is saying over and over, keep your focus in the right place. Keep looking in the right place. Don't keep looking at what, what you do. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with making yourself a list of do's and don'ts. If you're struggling with a certain sin, it's good to say, I will not go here. I will not do this. I will not be in fellowship with this person. I will do this thing. I will do it. That's all fine and good. But if that stays the focus of your life, you'll never grow up spiritually. You'll never mature. If you live your life, a life of do's and don'ts, and there's a time for that. But if that's where your life is, you'll never grow up spiritually. And even worse than that, probably what will happen is as you have your list of do's and don'ts, you'll become you will become me focused. And your success, if you're successful in those do's and don'ts, you will then think about how well you've done in your success. And if you fail, you will look at what a failure I am. You see how easy it is to do that? You know, I've I've overcome the sin. Let let me think of something. Um, I'm trying to think of some generic sin. Don't don't yell out. Gambling. Okay, let's try gambling. All right. I will not go to Tennessee and buy lottery tickets. All right, whatever it is. But, you know, if you, if you succeed in that, then you'll be proud of what, how good you did, how well I did. Well, I'm so good at this. I, I set my mind to it, and I sit. And you see you, how many times you said I? And if you go to Tennessee and buy the lottery ticket and you don't win... Probably won't. Then you're such a failure. Oh, what a failure I am. All right, some of you are saying there's nothing wrong with lottery tickets. All right. (laughs) I'm just giving an example, all right? Whatever. But you see my point. You become me focused so quickly, and that's why why John over and over just sends you back and says, Look here, it's all about God. And that's what he says right at in verse 5. He says, the, this condensed message, if you were to condense it down and ta- say the good news in a simple sentence, here it is. Verse 5, this is the message, which means good news, the, good, the news, which is the good news. We have heard and declared to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If I were to ask you, go and tell someone the gospel in one sentence, what would you say? Now, you, I've already given you the answer. But if I hadn't, <clears throat> would it be something like repent and be baptized? So that's okay. Uh, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. That's okay. All right. But John says, here's, here's the message. This, is, this sums it up. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That sums up the gospel. That's the good news. And that's where we start seeing this is deeper than, than I thought before. I mean, if that's the good news, well, what does it mean? All, everything that this, this statement says, everything that it implies about light and what he is, is summed up right here. Let's look at the paraphrase real quick. The first, whatever verses I have here, four or five verses. And this, I, I do this for myself and I share it with you because I, I try and sum up what... I am seeing this says in as short of verses that I can. That message wrapped up in a person. And some of these things I've read to you and some of these I have not read to you. 
That message wrapped up in a person beginning the moment he entered this world. We listened intently. What we saw, we came to fully understand. We did this. We did with our own eyes and we gazed at him with serious and deliberate study. We actually physically touched him with our own hands. That message, the word of life. That life blazed out in light. That life which we have actually seen and stand in the court of life as personal witnesses to him and have been sent out to proclaim to you the eternal and true life which came directly from the Father and was manifested clearly to us. What we have seen clearly and heard so acutely that his words still ring in our ears, we stand calling out and proclaiming to you also, not just the world, that all that you all may have continued fellowship with us. And indeed, all our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write all this, that our mutual joy may be filled to the full and overflowing. The second thing that we that I came that I saw was that John talks about what is real in life. Reality. Welcome to reality. <laughs> The world lives confused. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The world is a confused place. And it is not unique to our times. You go all the way back as far as you can read in history and people are confused. They're searching. They don't know what's true. We say things like, oh, what, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Your truth, my truth. We you know, you know, say things like this. And it just shows how confused we are. And when people try to find out what is true through their own efforts, they usually get either kind of a shadow, shadowed truth or something that's not true at all. You can read the philosophers and if you want to be bored, you can read them. But if you want to be entertained, listen to music. I mean, musicians, our musicians are our poets. They're our philosophers. And if you listen to a lot of their, if you listen to music, they are expressing their philosophy. And I, there's probably some modern, uh, current day songs that I could come to, but I'm, I'm a 70s child, okay? So Chicago, I'm not talking about the city. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You're in the, uh, you older ones. Chicago is a, it was a band, all right? Great, great group in a lot of ways. But do you remember the song, Does Anyone Know What Time It Is? Does anybody know what time it is? All right. Let me just read part. Yeah. Someone. We're starting to sing. All right. All together now. <laughs> Does anybody know what time it is? Does anybody really care? And I'm not going to read the whole song, but one point he says, people running everywhere don't know the way to go. Don't know where I am. Can't see past the next step. And that sums up the world. I don't know where I'm going. I don't even care where I'm going. Does anyone care? Do you even know what time it is? People running back and forth. But God reveals himself and he says, this is true. You want to know what's true? I'm going to tell you what's true. This is the truth. This is the news. And it's so good that you're not going to believe it. You're going to have a hard time. You're going to struggle with this. Even when you come to believe it, you're going to have a hard time believing what I have, the good news. As you, as you find out more and more about it. It's hard to believe the truth. That's why it takes faith. Because it's easy to drift through the world and just kind of go wherever the world goes and you don't know what's happening. But the truth takes faith to believe. 
This reality that we have to face up to revolves around this concept of light that we saw in the first chapter. The reality of God that he is light, as we read that. We have uh, that God is light. All that it implies, the reality of truth is based on walking in the light. Verse 6, let me read that to you. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And that's stated in the negative, but he's saying that the reality of truth is walking in God's light. Now, many think that living in God's light or walking in God's light is something akin to being sinless. And this is where a lot of people read this passage and they say, well, walking in the light means I have to live a pure life, a sinless life. But here's the reality is that God is that fellowship with God means our sins are exposed. We don't pretend that we're okay. We don't pretend that everything's okay. And when we expose our sins, we admit our sins. God says, I purify you. I take care of them. See, our truth is I will I will do some things to get myself right with God and then he'll accept me and I will live my life in such a way that he'll continue to accept me. And John says, that's wrong. That's just a burden. You're not going to make it that way. He says, here's the truth. You confess your sin. You state that it's that you have sin. Did I read verse 7? No, let's read verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. It's an ongoing process. This is what happens. Your blood, the, the blood of Jesus purifies your sin, which implies you have sin that needs purifying. And so one of the criticisms that a lot of Christians get is that we're hypocrites, that we pretend that we're something we're not. Well, I'm here to tell you we're sinners. If you're visiting and you're not a Christian, and you say, oh, those Christians, they think they're better than anyone else. Guess what? We're not. The only thing that we have is a God who purifies us of our sins as we sin. Here's the truth. What is real? Verse eight. We're marred humans. We have sinned. We sin and we will sin. We needed, we need and we will need a savior. When I became a Christian, it didn't mean I no longer needed a savior. It didn't mean I was just saved from my past and I'm saved from my future sins. Both directions. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. The reason he was slain before the foundation of the earth is because we needed it all the way through eternity. And that's what John is trying to tell us. He wrote Revelation, by the way. If we claim to be without sin, verse 8. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you say you're okay, the truth is not in you. You're not living in a real world, he says. So we agree with God. We say, okay, God, we confess. That's what the word confess means. I say the same thing that God says. So I'm going to say the same thing God says about my sin. I'm going to say the same thing that he says about my sin. And he doesn't say it's okay. He doesn't say I've got it under control. None of that's true. Read verse 9. If we confess our sin, if we say that same thing that God says about our sins. 
He is faithful and he's just and he'll forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God, I'm a sinner. I mess up. And even when I set my mind that I'm not going to do something, I'm going to do something, I mess up. And God says, good, you've come to reality. You're not God, are you? You're not perfect, are you? Okay, I'm going to take care of your sins. And it's so good news that we sit there and go, oh, man, but if we say that, then you just gave everyone the license to go out and do awful things. Well, we're going to get to chapter 2, verse 1 in a minute that I mentioned before. All this will help you not to sin. To say anything else is to say, God, you're a liar. That's reality. And in one sense, this is a hard truth to admit. It's hard to say, you know, I'm never going to have it all together. I'm going to forever need to center my existence on Jesus, my salvation in God. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our life. Let's read the... That's 10 that I read. This is the news, the good news we heard from and saw in the life of Jesus, who is the complete and true revelation of what real life is. Now we ring out this declaration that he, with all authority, commissioned us to proclaim God is light. In him, there is not the slightest speck of darkness. Now, suppose we tell everyone that we have a partnership, a communion, a relationship with God who is light. And yet we live our lives covering up and hiding, keeping out what God's purity and holiness exposes in our lives. Well, we are lying to ourselves and do not live in the open and revealing light of God. But if we live our lives in the open exposure of God's light, his glorious light that penetrates and shows us who we are, that partnership, communion and relationship with God exists. And the blood of Jesus' Son continually whitewashes and cleanses and takes away absolutely all sin in our lives. Now, suppose we say that our human nature is not marred by sin. Say that and your life is going down the wrong path. And you won't have a clue where or who you are. You're not living a life in the open and revealing light of God. But the ones who acknowledge their sins and who say the same thing about their sins as God says about their sins... And he makes that as clear as the day at noon. We'll discover that he is true to his word and he will not double charge those sins to your account. He will release and let our sins go and will completely erase every stain of sin which has placed you in a wrong relationship with him. Suppose even further we look back on our lives and say, I really haven't done anything that bad. I'm a pretty good person. Say that and you're saying, God, you're a liar. Then his word, his true word that reveals who you are and gives your life direction and purpose and clarity and confidence will not be a daily reality. But instead, you'll stumble through life as if what he told you is not true. Chapter two. We're going to cover 21 verses. Second stated purpose that I've already mentioned is that you do not sin. And there's this temptation to disregard our personal responsibility when we first discover that God is at the center of it all. There's this temptation and I and I've been people have talked to me about this and say, you know, I know you're not saying this, but it sounds like 
Well, it sounded like it to people who read John and who, people who heard Paul had the same problems, that they would listen to this good news and it's so good, it's all about God. Well, then I'll just drift through life. I'll do what I want to do. I'll, you know, since it's all about God, I'll let him take care of my sins. I'll just, I'll just go through life. And we spent a whole lesson talking about how that's not what this letter is saying. John states that if we really understand the good news and the nature of God, the result is we won't sin. We won't start making excuses for sin because the good news will lead us away from sin and to him. It's not compatible when we're when we're in him and we're living in him and we're learning about him and we're living for him. Sin will take a secondary stance in our life. And then it'll be some sins will even be out of our lives. Some sins will be sneaking back there trying to catch us again. But they'll, they'll just be out because you're walking in the light. You're learning about God. But there's a greater temptation, I believe, for man to quickly revert to God, the gospel being about me, as I said before. When we discover that we're not to sin, we set up these rules and disciplines, our own efforts of do's and don'ts. And then we have a man-centered and a man-effort gospel. So John, as I said, pulls us quickly back here. And he says, even though I wrote this, that you do not sin, if you do, and you will, you have an advocate. He focuses on Jesus' work. And he is righteous. He is right. He will do the right thing. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only... For ours, but for but also for the sins of the whole world. Then right away, John introduces this concept of knowing. And this word knowing is just going to be all throughout the letter. Let me read verses. uh, Let me read three through six. We know that we have we know we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I know people need to I know people need to wake up right now. And the reason is because when you read a lot, it's like you're a child and you're read to sleep. All right. So I'm reading to you. Wake up. This is God's word. All right. Listen. I caught myself going to sleep. All right. But if anyone obeys this word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. This word know is used 37 times. There's two words in the Greek that we translate into the word know. And it's almost 50-50, but 60% of the time, this word know means knowing by experience, by doing. Things that you do, that's how you know. And you know that you do some things and you really know how to do it, right? And that's one of the words that he uses here. And the other one is 40 percent of the time is used uh, information knowledge, you know, by book knowledge, you know, because someone told you and both are important. You can't say this one is good and this one's bad. They're both important because that's how we really learn something, isn't it? You know, you go to school and someone tells you something and then someone shows you what they told you and you do it and you know it. And you would say at the first, you know, well, I knew I knew when he said this. Well, you did. You knew it upstairs. 
but you really didn't know it until you got involved in it and you began doing it. And so this importance of knowing is stated over and over about every third verse. Know is used. And it's important to remind, be reminded that we know because we forget so easily. And we're surprised at how much we know when we're told what we know. Let me just tell you, let me read you some things that you know. Christians know a lot of things. Boom. Let's see. Let's read them together. We know that Jesus was a real person, flesh and blood. And yet the word of life. I'm not going to read the verses. We know that we have fellowship with the father and the son and with one another. We know the gospel message. God is light. We know the blood of Jesus continually purifies us from all sin. We know that God is faithful and keeps his word and forgives us as we agree with him that we are sinners. We know we have an advocate who speaks on our defense. We know that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We know that we know by keeping, guarding and cherishing his commands. When God's love is expressed in our lives, we know we are in him. We know the true light is in the logos or the word and in our lives. We know we love our fellow Christians, and by this we walk in the clarity of the light. We know that we have been forgiven not by what we have done, but by what he has done on account of his name. We know all this from the beginning of our walk with him. From the very first day you became a Christian, you knew this. We know the evil one has been overcome, that we are strong in the Lord, and that his words live in in us. We know that a focus on the world only defocuses us from the love of God. And we know this world is passing away and that we who focus on God's will live forever. We know these things. You know everything that's important, John is saying. Everything you need to know, you know. But guess what? It takes a lifetime to discover what you know. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? You know it, but you're learning it. You know it, but you're continuing to know it and continuing to be reminded of it. And so we look at the paraphrase here where he says, my dear little ones, I'm putting this down in black and white for this express purpose so that you will not sin, not even once. But if anyone does sin, and certainly that will happen, we have an advocate, one who speaks face to face with the father, declaring our innocence. He's our complete defender against Satan. Jesus, the man anointed by God, righteous. He is the one through whom the wrath of God is satisfied, propitiation, sins paid in full. Not only are our sins taken care of, but for anyone else in the whole world who desires it. And this is how we experience a daily, continuous and growing knowledge that we actually have come to know him and still know him. We treasure, value and hold in the highest esteem his commands, which leads to obedience. A person who says... I really know God, yet does not value and guard and hold tight his commands, lives an illusionary life and is, in fact, a liar. God's truth, what is really real, is not a part of his life. But those who continually treasure and guard and hold on to his word, his instructions, his perfect law, and those people, God's love meets its goal and purpose, that of attaining maturity and completeness in him. Now, this is how we know that we are in an abiding, living relationship with him. Whoever says, I'm at home in Christ, must place their full dependency on him all throughout the journey of their lives. 
The next thing that we come to is the way John writes. He's, he's, he's circular. He states something and he expands on it. He's going to keep expanding on the concepts that we'll keep coming up with. And one of the first places I saw this is in chapter 2, verse 7, how he expands everything he wrote before that in chapter 2, verse 7, where he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had from the beginning. This old command is the message, which connects back to chapter 1, you have heard. And then he begins to expand on this. And one example of this expansion is love. And we're going to see this concept of God's love. It's been implied in all that he stated before. And then he begins to expand it. And here in this verse, verse 7, the better translation of dear friends is beloved. You are the beloved of, of God. And he uses this word beloved. It's the very same word that God used of Jesus. This is my beloved son. And now he says, and you are my beloved you are, you are loved as I love Jesus. And he begins to expand this concept of love throughout the book. We see him going through it in, into, into chapter, um, uh, all throughout chapter 2. Later on, we're going to get to this beautiful passage in chapter 4, which we'll spend a full year on, I'm sure. <laughs> chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. And he talks about the love of God that is just mind-blowing. Is this great crescendo of love when he comes to that. You can skip ahead and you can read that. It'll do you a lot of good. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and just read on in chapter, uh, starting verse 7 through 17. Oh, dear special ones, loved by God, I'm not writing something brand new, some command you've never heard before. But what I am saying is as old as from the day of your new birth. This old command is the logos, which you heard. And took effect in your life. On the other hand, what I am writing to you is a unique new command. It has been tried and found true in him and in you, in him and in you. Because the reality is that the darkness is in the process of passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who claims I'm walking in the light yet hates his brother is in reality in darkness. Whoever loves his brother exists in the light, and that person won't be tripping up all over themselves in that kind of walk. But the one who hates his brother lives in darkness. His life is one of stumbling and bumbling around without a clue to what is real and true. No direction in life, because that very darkness of hate has blinded him. I'm writing this to all of you, my dear precious children, to remind you that your sins are forgiven. They are gone. Gone, gone. And this forgiveness is anchored in the very character and act of Jesus. I'm writing to those who are mature in the faith because from the very beginning of your spiritual walk, you have known him. And those of you who are vibrant in your young faith, I'm writing you to remind you that you have conquered the evil one. I said this before to the very youngest in the faith because you, too, have known the father. And also, I have told the mature, you from the beginning of your spiritual life have had an intimate relationship with him. And I reminded you, vibrant young people, that you are strong. The very word of God has hunkered down deep in you and the evil one is defeated. Do not live a world focused life being mesmerized by it while clamoring for its favor and fellowship. 
For nothing is more incompatible and directly opposed to a God-focused life than a world-centered existence. If you hug the world close to your heart, you'll squeeze God love right out of your life. And here's the reason. The whole world system, which is composed of the gnawing hunger of fulfilling all feelings and the illegitimate desire to pursue whatever appeals to you, and the haughty pride of outdoing everyone and bragging about what you've accomplished and accumulated does not spring from the Father, but percolates from the cauldron of the world. The world with its never-ending and insatiable yearnings are fleeting and valueless. However, the person who keeps on doing what God desires lives forever. We came to a difficult section, and this will end here. Verses 18 through 21 or so. Three things he says. He talks about the last hour of the Antichrist and the anointing. And people love to get into this and, you know, accuse of whoever to be the Antichrist. And without going into two more lessons on this, let me just sum up what I think these three stand for. First, the last hour says we live in the final era. This is the last hour. Since the resurrection of Jesus, we're in the final era of history. He's saying there's nothing else. God has no other plan. There's not going to be some era later on that he's going to bring a new plan into being and he's going to do something different. This is it. This is the last hour. I I sent you my son who from the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the earth, he had crucified him for us. There's no other plan. We are in the last hour. And the Antichrist is not a special person. It's not one special person, but it's anyone who opposes Christ, who is against Christ. And they're all around us. That's what John actually says. They're all around us. And the anointing isn't a mystical or special anointing from the Holy Spirit. There's a play on words going on here that's talking about an anointment from the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one and he has anointed us. He's given us an ointment, actually. We are little Christ. We are in Christ. And Christ is in us. It's who we are. And it comes back to what we know in verse chapter two and verse uh, 21. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Let me read this last section. We'll be done. Little infants, it is the last hour, the final era. You have heard Antichrist is just about to come. But at this very moment, antichrists are all around, a dime a dozen. This proves the fact that we are in the final era of time. These counterfeit Christians left us, although they were really never were a part of our fellowship. If they were of us, they would have been right here with us. But it obviously came to light they were not of us. However, you now have a present and a continual anointment. An ointment from the holy. You all know. I'm not writing this to you because you are not aware of the truth. You know it. Clear as a bell. It rings true in your ears because no discordant sound emanates from the truth. No lie can mix with the truth. Mother, this is a true story. Got it from a friend on Facebook. Mother said to her little four-year-old daughter, I've asked you plenty of times, what can I do to get you to listen to me? She answered, 
practice. <laughs> Wisdom from a child. And that's it's almost as if God tells us, how many times do I have to tell you this to get you to listen to me? And then he tells us, you need to practice this. You need to put it into practice. You need to practice. That's all it takes. We know a lot. Our problem is we question what we know. And I think we question what we know because I don't know why you do that. Oh, there you go. Because you don't want to do it. (laughs) Words of wisdom again. (laughs) Practice. And so if you're outside of Christ, boy, join the fellow sinners, the fellow ones who are know they can't make it on their own and know that we serve a living God who completely cleanses us, purifies us from our sins and lifts us up so that we have the opportunity to put aside all those things and live for him. We're going to invite anyone here who's not a Christian. That's those two 